0: chapter 16 just make a couple little notes as well on uh or Ifany. i don't know where she sat down Ifany charles i want to mention as well uh, bradley her son is at home and also her husband willis um we got to meet him during her membership meeting and he works nearly every sunday and uh, but he went through and, and since she had another family member at home i thought it was only Appropriate to mention him and he went through the doctrinal statement and encouraged her to become a member as well. And uh, really looking for prayer that he can get a schedule where he can be with them each Sunday. But it's wonderful to have all the new members here. Also if you're an older member, if you saw in the in the spotlight, uh, we're going to be a golden corral this Tuesday. You do not want to miss that one. And if you're wondering uh, who normally goes, a lot of our seniors who are retired and have time... Uh, some of our uh, people who have odd schedules, even younger folks, even about my age. Gerald even makes it. Gerald's kids make it a lot of the time. And uh, we have a good time. So if you're you're looking for um, interaction on a Tuesday at 1, that's normally every other Tuesday at 1, first and second and fourth Tuesdays of the month. So it is a good time. And Gerald and I, if we don't have something else that presses us, we always try to be there. Um, our... Passage today is is the same as it was last week, Luke chapter 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know, last Sunday we departed, and we had the understanding of how this very wealthy man was a representation of the Pharisees. And uh, um, Jesus was confronting them as as he gave this, this story And with a pharisaical mind, we learn that such a man would have adopted a very strict sense of tithing. We learned that last week. Back in Luke 11, verse 42, that we studied a few months ago, we heard Jesus state this, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. And when we get to Luke chapter 18... Uh, we will once again find a Pharisee just boasting in his own righteousness, bragging in his own righteousness, even saying, I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. Uh, So tithing was mistakenly applied as the universal standard of generosity. But we learned last week that it didn't actually qualify for what the law demanded. Mercy, justice, righteousness. And uh, this rich man in our story, he was a very wealthy man. He, he surely tithed, but he paid no attention to Lazarus. No attention whatsoever outside of his front gate. Uh, instead, a distorted ritual of tithing uh, permitted him to, to mark a clean cutoff point. I'm going to give this much, nothing beyond. So he used the other 90% for what? We learned last week for, for building wealth, for showing it off, living ostentatious Lee, um, the lesson is you will either build God's kingdom with the money that he has entrusted to you or you will build your own one or the other one or the other you cannot serve God and mammon which is wealth uh, as my wife was out of town this past week uh, in my loneliness I sat on Sunday evening actually and um, I came across a classic movie It was a movie about a, well, a a traveling preacher of sort who rode horseback and traveled out west. Uh, The movie had one scene that uh, supplies a really great synopsis or, or a summary to the passage that we have been studying in Luke chapter 16. The whole chapter, actually, the movie is called Pale Rider. Ever seen that one with Clint Eastwood? Pale Rider. Of course, I watched the the uh, version edited for language. Um, <laughs> Eastwood, he plays a gunfighter who, who puts his gun away into a lockbox and, and then dons a clerical collar. All right, And he rides into a mining town where he, he befriends this group of uh, uh, really poor miners. They're people who were trying to get a new start in life. They were poor settlers. And he's trying to help them uh, fill their claims for gold. And, but a very wealthy man, a very wealthy man who owned most of the town, by the way, and had influence over the rest of it, he wanted their claims. Whatever he needed to do to get their claims, he was willing to do it. Um, unfortunately, he found that Eastwood's character, was, it'd be, he'd become such an inspiration to these settlers that they would neither sell out nor move. They weren't going anywhere. So to shift the balance... So to speak, the wealthy man calls in uh, this pale rider, this preacher, into his office in an attempt to bribe him. He was going to try to uh, bribe him. He said that he would, he would build the pastor a brand new church in town. The preacher replies, Well, I could see a preacher being really tempted by an offer such as that. Then he goes... The first thing you know, that preacher, he's going to need to get himself a, a batch of new clothes. The rich man replies, well, well, yes, we could get them tailor-made. Eastwood says, well, then he'd start thinking about those Sunday collections. The rich man said, yes, yes, in, in a town as rich as this, that preacher would become a very wealthy man. The character played by Eastwood turns to him and says, that's why it never worked. You can't serve God and mammon, mammon being money. Of course, even defines for the listeners what is mammon. It is wealth. It is money, and the Pharisees thought that you could achieve both—that you could both be very wealthy, have all kinds of uh, a fortune, enjoy a fortune in this life, and serve God at the same time. But what the Pale Rider determined was, you know, I'd rather remain poor than end up where this rich man's going to end up. Uh, When you watch that movie, you know, the director's desire at that point is for you to decide who you'd rather be. Who are you going to identify with? Ask yourself, which one of these characters would I be? And the obvious answer is, I want to be Clint Eastwood, Right? I want to be Clint Eastwood because everybody knows it's the rich bad guy who's going to die. And he's going to be judged for his life, uh, um, his uh, life that's really a poor example. Eastwood as a character gets to ride away without money, but with his integrity intact. That's kind of the story that Jesus has here with the rich man and Lazarus. He wants the reader to ask, who do you identify with? Which one of these two in the story are you? And up until this point, the Pharisees that were listening, they wanted to be the rich guy. They wanting to be the rich guy. Nobody wants to be the poor guy. The poor guy who is lying outside the gate with ulcerated sores. Um, Pharisees would say, you know, I want to be that, that rich man, that one that is finely dressed, lives behind the big gate, living sumptuously. Because that must be the one who God loves. That's what the Pharisees thought. He must be the one that God really loves. I want to be like Him. So Jesus had had set the hook. Set the hook in them in in determining in their minds who they would rather be. And I'll tell you what, folks. Even today, this is is a fact. We almost instinctively conclude the rich person in a community or wealthy people in a church are prospering because... They're the ones who God loves. So often we quickly conclude that. There must be something special about him or her. Uh, That is an entirely false assumption uh, that not all, not all, but many uh, megachurches thrive on. They tell their people every Sunday that if you just trust in Jesus, then everything in your life is going to turn to gold. God promises to prosper the faithful, they say. So the ones that you see prospering are the most faithful. Folks, this is usually referred to, I'm sure you heard the term before, referred to as the prosperity gospel. And Lazarus in our passage today, he ensures that is a religious hoax. Complete hoax. Lazarus in the story, he's the poor guy. He is so poor that he longs to be fed by the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table from another person. Have you ever been that poor? Have you ever been so poor that you just wish that something would fall off another man's table so you could have something to eat? His health is weakened to the point he can't walk. Remember, last week we discovered that that he was laid there. He was laid at the gate by other people, so he might be a cripple or he is very weak. He's covered with these sores, these ulcerated sores. And the Pharisees would have concluded that this is certainly a result of unconfessed sin. They they would be convinced of that again because they, they just failed to heed Scripture again and again, especially the book of Job, which would have made it very clear in assuring them that suffering is not always due to sin. They just never went to the Scripture as their authority. Uh, but the prosperity of the righteous—it was so entrenched in that culture that when Jesus and his disciples entered, uh, encountered a bland uh, mind, uh, excuse me, a man blind from birth. When Jesus and his disciples encountered a man blind from birth, the disciples immediately assumed it was sin. In John 9 verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus replied, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Later in that same chapter, John chapter 9, under interrogation by the Pharisees, the man formerly blind said of Jesus, if this man were were not from God, he could do nothing. But the Pharisees answered him, You were born entirely in sins. That's what they told the man formerly blind. You were born in sins because you were born blind. And are you teaching us? They told him. And then they they sent him out. They put him out. But later when that man again encountered Jesus, he declared, Lord, I believe. I believe. And the scripture says that he worshipped Jesus. Jesus. That blind man believed. We know that Lazarus was a believer as well. Because when he died, verse 22 says that he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now it's hard to establish um, a deep doctrine or or, uh, points about Abraham's bosom. Because this is the only place in the Bible where Abraham's bosom is ever mentioned. That, that, That phraseology is not used anywhere else. Uh, so it's hard to establish firm doctrine on this. Uh, but we do know it was used in rabbinic literature widely as, as a concept for heaven. It was, it was a parallel to heaven. So Jesus, he, he's speaking to the Pharisees in, his own, in their own language. And, and everybody there, any, everybody listening would have recognized that this is the place that the righteous go so that they can join Abraham the faithful, right? Right? Everybody who was righteous would go join Father Abraham in glory. So they referred to it as Abraham's bosom. So Lazarus, he went to be with Abraham. Lazarus went to glory. And even this wouldn't shock the Pharisees all that much. Lazarus, after all, was a Hebrew. He, as a Hebrew, was... most would go, according to the Pharisees, everyone except for the very worst of the worst, like tax collectors and other uh, very vile people. All Hebrews, they figured, went to heaven, according to Jewish tradition. So the fact that, that Lazarus went directly to heaven wouldn't have really thrown them that much, as long as Lazarus was a Hebrew. It just would have reinforced for the Pharisees that Jesus must be ensuring that the bar for getting there is really low. You know, in the U.S., uh, we think that way. Sometimes we think that the bar uh, for getting into heaven is really low. Um, You know, everybody really in the culture believes that we all go to heaven except for axe murderers, right? You ever been to funerals somewhere where it isn't really a a very strong Christian influence? And, And this attraction to establishing a really Low bar is that everybody gets in. This is one of why why one of the meanest people who you've ever known, one of the cruelest people that you've ever known. If you were to go to their funeral, you're going to hear everybody saying, "Well, they're they're in a better place now." Ever hear that? All the time, all the time. Um, everyone would be absolutely certain that that really awful person you all knew is in a better place now. How do you know? How do you know? Because in our story, Lazarus isn't described as an awful person. He's he's actually a saint. He's Saint Lazarus. He's a believer. He's trusted in Christ. He's been made holy um, through faith in God as the Hebrews knew it. And uh, though we aren't given any indication of what his morality was, he was just a sick person. We do know that he was made holy through the gift of faith. We know that. The Old Testament scripture, he, at that point yet, he wouldn't have known that Christ was rising from the dead, but he did believe in a God who justifies sinners. That's always been the bar for getting into heaven. So we know Lazarus is saved, but notice, even though he's saved, even though he's going to heaven, his living conditions didn't improve. They never got, ever, never got better ever for Lazarus. He died in that condition. Folks, it is impossible to defend a gospel that says, well, once you trust in Jesus, all your problems are going away, and you are going to prosper if you just have enough faith. Folks, the, the fact is, though we re- uh, live in a really wealthy America, the fact is most Christians around the world don't. Most are very poor. Most don't have adequate medical care. Many are persecuted for the gospel that they believe. James said this, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Of course he did. Lazarus didn't join Abraham because the bar of acceptance was so low. He went there because God displays His mercy on those whom the world doesn't. God shows mercy on those that the world despises. And so should we. So should we. Who in this story would you rather be? Think about that for a minute. Because... When circumstances don't, don't go real well in your life, when things aren't going well, um, that doesn't imply, that by itself does not imply that God is not taking care of you and that God doesn't love you. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know, if you've said, like the blind man did, Lord, I believe, and you worship Christ as Savior and Lord, uh, that faith in Christ is the only bar for making it into heaven. The loss, hear this, the loss of health or wealth or status in a society is not cause for concern because these are only temporal experiences. They're short-term conditions. Uh, They will be exchanged for the comforts that God provides when His angels come and get us. So many people I talk to, um, if they aren't keeping up, with society, They don't have what uh, they feel is, is appropriate for society. They feel there must be something wrong with me. No, that's not an indication at all. In fact, I think about growing up, and we weren't poor, poor. We weren't uh, waiting for someone's scraps to fall off another table. We had everything that we need, but we didn't have new cars. We didn't have fancy tractors and all kinds of other things on the farm. Our stuff was pretty old. And I wouldn't trade, now looking back, I wouldn't trade my experience for anything. God had been shaping it throughout my whole life. When I was a teenage, teenager, I might have thought I needed a nicer car than what we could afford to have. I'm so glad the experience that God gave me, just as whatever experience He is giving you, that you can give Him glory for it. Because He's working out a plan in your life. Um, when it comes to these angels, I've... I read John MacArthur's commentary on this uh, gospel. It's really, really good commentary. He proposes there that there's n- never any other biblical evidence that angels actually come and get us. Uh, just so you know, as we get further into this, Mer- MacArthur also embraces the view that this is a parable, that it is not a literal historical event, but it is a parable, a creative story that contains a spiritual lesson rather than a historical account. But from our scripture reading that we read together earlier, from Matthew chapter 13, I think John MacArthur may be mistaken on this one. Can I say that? When he suggests there's no other biblical precedent or pattern for angels escorting us to heaven. Um, Earlier, we actually heard Jesus in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13 explaining the parable of the tares, right? Now note again, This is not the giving of the tares, the parable giving of the parable. This is the interpretation of the parable, where he assigns values to things. Um, He says, for the understanding of his disciples, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No second chances. Um, So... I think that seems to suggest that God sends forth angels as escorts, uh, not only to believers as Lazarus, but to the damned. But to the damned. It, it, it makes sense. Uh, for those of us going to heaven, think about it. How are we going to know how to get there? For the damned who are destined for the fiery furnace, as Matthew says, the angels will gather them up and throw them into the fiery furnace, Who's going to make sure that they don't become an international flight risk? Right? So this provides actually, I believe, a second place the Bible mentions this this idea of angels being an escort for God either, either to heaven or to hell. I think it's very plausible. Though I'm not going to establish a firm doctrine on this. I think it's very plausible the first thing that we will experience after death are angels taking us with them, showing the way? Um, I don't think that this alone, though, makes this entire story of Lazarus, uh, doesn't deem it either literal or historical. Uh, I'll get there in a minute. Either way, Lazarus finds his way to heaven, he's shown the way. And in verse 22, the rich man. He also died and was buried, and in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. This is the point uh, where all the jaws of the Pharisees drop. This is where they're like, "Uh uh-uh, this story isn't lining up with what we believe. They had already, uh, during the giving of the story, self-identified as the rich man. And now he sits in Hades, or, or, or hell. Now, Hades is a, is a Greek equivalent for the Hebrew term Sheol. That's just the place of the dead. Alright? And, and notice the rich man's experience. It is immediate. As soon as he lifts his eyes, as soon as he opens his eyes, he felt the torment. There's, there's no period of delay in this. There, there is no soul sleep. People talk about soul sleep, where once you die, everyone's just going to sleep until the judgment of God. Um, no, that's not what this teaches. There's no purgatory to burn off sins. And we know this because 1 Peter 3 8 tells us that Christ died once for all sins. So there, there's no second chance to trust in Christ. Those are all false. Those are all false. Hebrews 9:27 says it is appointed for a man to die once and after this judgment. So so there are no do-overs, all right? There's no do-overs. If you refuse to believe the scriptures. Like like this rich man does. If you refuse to believe the scriptures, you've had all the chances in this life you're going to get. What would be the purpose of having more chances afterwards? And someone will say from time to time, you'll hear him say, well, you know, when when people die and then they see how really serious it's going to get, then they'll believe. Oh, really? Turn to our passage. Sight doesn't initiate faith. They won't believe. In fact, we're going to see that this rich man doesn't call out to mercy to God at all. That's not who he calls out to. Who does he call out to? Verse 24, And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. Even in Hades. Even in Hades under the judgment of hell, his hope remains. His hope for mercy remains in the same place that he had it while he was alive. His hope was in the fact that he was a descendant of Abraham. He calls out to Abraham. This is another hint. The rich man and his brothers symbolize the Pharisees. You know, Pharisees believed they would go to heaven because they were Hebrews on the basis of not that God justifies sinners who have faith, but in the fact that they, they had a relationship with Father Abraham. That's what they always appealed to, was their relationship with Father Abraham. They trusted in their genealogy. You know, think about this. What relationship are you trusting in? Because I've run into people you know, over time talking to them at airports or, or wherever we all run into people, and you'll hear people say, hey, are you a Christian? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, my family's always been Christian. My grandma was a Christian. My grandma, you know, she, she, she was a good Christian woman. Of course we're all Christians. Are you trusting in the fact that your grandma was a Christian? Do you, do you think that she's going to be there to pull the strings? Do you, do you think that someone is going to recognize you at the gate? Maybe you know, we always make jokes about St. Peter at the pearly gates. you think he's going to be there pulling the strings? Do you think a pastor, do you think some family member, do you think anyone other than Christ is a relationship that you need to have in order to get into heaven? That's the problem with the Pharisees. They believed in a relationship with other than the God of the Bible. They had a relationship with a mere man. Abraham can't do anything for him. Abraham's not in the position to do anything for him. Abraham's just a man. Christ, who died for sins, is the Holy One. And He will save from death and Hades and hell. Faith must, must rest in God's beloved Son, only in His beloved Son. And whoever believes in Him, Scripture says what? He will never perish, or she will never perish. But during their life on earth, you know, Pharisees, they didn't give a rip about Jesus. I don't really care about this Jesus. They they couldn't care less about that one who came to save. In fact, they were really annoyed with all the buzz about Jesus. They're trying to suppress all this buzz about Jesus. Abraham says, um, You know, save me. Send Lazarus to, to comfort me. Maybe he can dip his. His finger in some water and place it on my tongue. I'm in agony in this flame. Folks, does it get hot down there? Which man do you want to be? The one who experiences prosperity for a little while or the one who has placed his faith in God who justifies sinners? Do you think anyone who is there now awaiting final judgment Do you think any of them want to be there? No, they don't want to be there. And Abraham says there's no way out. No way out. Um, Hell is for real, folks. You don't need that book I mentioned last week in order to assure you of that. Scripture assures hell is for real. The suffering is intense. Um, I have to stress that no matter how you take this passage whether you believe it is a literal uh, occurrence of events or whether you believe it is a parable, um, Jesus assures the experience of torment. It's it's experienced bodily. The man has a tongue. There is a finger. He feels the agony in his body. Um, Don't hate me. This is one of the statements after looking at it carefully has changed my opinion on whether this is a literal historical account or whether it is a parable. I think it's a parable. Give me a few minutes. The rich man's first request of Abraham is to have mercy by sending Lazarus with a drop of water for his tongue. How about Abraham pull a fire handle? If it's really that agonizing why is his first request to Abraham a drop of water? It seems to me, and you're free to disagree on this, but it appears the words that Jesus assigned to the rich man are meant to emphasize the magnitude of suffering in hell, but not real characteristic of a first response of someone who arrives there, a man tormented by a fiery, fiery, uh, fiery flame. Uh, consider that for a moment. What would be the first response if you opened your eyes and saw Abraham? A second thing I considered is the next verse. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. Jesus' statement seems to be directed as having more benefit to the hearers that are listening to Jesus than it does um, to provide an adequate explanation of why this man is in hell. Just because he had comforts in that world? That doesn't seem to be for the benefit of the man in hell, but for the hearers of Christ's words. In fact, the entire dialogue seems to be orchestrated primarily for the benefit of Jesus' hearer. Today, that would be you and me rather than serving as a benefit to the rich man who's already there. The truth in it contained is real. The story plays out like a parable. John Calvin writes this, Some look upon it as a simple parable, but as the name Lazarus occurs in it, I rather consider it to be the narrative of an actual uh, fact, says Calvin. But that is of little consequence, he says, provided that the reader comprehends the doctrine which it contains. That's the important part. MacArthur believes it's a parable. Calvin believes, apparently because there's a name given to Lazarus, that this was a literal event. Um, that's normally what I hear from people. They'll say, do you think that's real or do you think it's just a story? And they say, well, Lazarus, you know, Jesus gave him a name. And MacArthur says, well, that, that alone isn't evidence. That's not good evidence. I think there's another reason for the name. I'll give that to you in a few moments. But I wonder if Calvin ever considered how many people throughout the history of the world were held in Hades at this time. Think about that for a second. Surely millions and millions are there awaiting final judgment and hundreds more being added every day. Do you think that Abraham spent his afternoon fielding questions? Does that really seem like, like heavenly bliss? That every person that comes in new gets to field questions uh, or gets Abraham to field their questions? I personally don't think so. I, I don't think Abraham needs to explain to the rich man why he is there. I think a person in hell knows why they're there. I think we need to exp- uh, this explanation so, why, so that we know why he's there. I don't think the rich man needs to know there is no relief available through Abraham. I think the Pharisees and the readers need to know that there is no hope through Abraham. I don't think the rich man needs to be told that there is a great gulf fixed that no man can cross. I think we need to be reminded that there is a great gulf fixed that no man can cross. So that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, says Abraham, and that none may cross over from there to us. There is no transitioning back and forth. There is no spending a period of penance there, burning and then getting out. No one can cross. There is absolute finality to death, after which your destiny will never change. I could be wrong. The nature of the story has been, it's been debated for centuries. People on Good Christians on both sides. But I don't really think there is a dialogue between Abraham and everyone in Hades. I don't think redeemed folks like Lazarus have to sit through listening to it. And I don't think any people experiencing hell cling to a glimmer of any hope that Abraham or anybody else is going to get them out of it. The lesson, regardless of how you take it, for the reader is seeing the rich man who had a great experience in life and how he ends up in hell. That's the lesson. The poor beggar Lazarus who had a horrible experience in life is in heaven. That's the thrust of the story. Your conditions here today are no guarantee of where you will be. You know, there are surely a number of prosperity preachers who would acknowledge. There will be certain rich people in hell, they would say. Uh, but the, it is the experience of, of Lazarus. That's the one we need to look at. That drives the nails in the coffin the prosperity hoax that is being peddled across our nation. The, the Bible never suggests that all good Christians will prosper. That, that, that is a lie. Um, what seems to be expressed as great concern in this passage is when money has become so central to a person's life that he, enjoy, he or she enjoys putting it on display rather than putting it into service for God, caring for people like Lazarus, at that point, wealth has become your master. You are not serving God, but mammon. Who in the story would you rather be? As we close, an insightful question was posed to me last Sunday. It's about the significance that Jesus... Uh, gives to using the name Lazarus? That That is a great, great question, by the way. I apologize, I've been tongue-tied today. Lazarus is the only person ever given a name in any of the parables or stories. Some, like John Calvin, use that name alone as a justification to overlook the other, what I consider obstacles to taking this as a literal account that I mentioned to you earlier, that, that the name of Lazarus somehow assures this was a literal historical event. Um, if, hist- if historicity is actually the reason for using the name Lazarus, then why didn't he also use the name of the rich man? I think there's another reason he used the name Lazarus. That is a very common, by the way, uh, a name, by the way, in, in that culture. Lazarus means he whom God helps. And there's certainly an irony intended with Lazarus, who the Pharisees would have said, yeah, right, he whom God helps. A man in that condition, God helps. But as we know, everyone who gets to heaven, God helps. It's because God helps. I think the significance of the name is larger. We all know this is not the Lazarus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha. He, he died later. That is not possible to be that Lazarus. The, the physical ailments and description of Lazarus don't match Uh, the brother of uh, Mary and Martha. Lazarus had clearly not died yet at the time Jesus gave this story. And and I didn't read this explanation anywhere else, so buyer beware. But I, I think this is the entire reason for using Lazarus as the name. What do the poor man in the story and the man that Jesus raises from the tomb share in common? A name. Lazarus. They share the same name. What does the rich man ask Abraham to do in verse 27? Send Lazarus to my Pharisaical brothers, right? Surely, we will see him declare next week, surely if someone goes to them from the dead named Lazarus, then my brothers will surely repent and believe. Abraham's reply is, no they won't. What serves as a confirming evidence that Pharisees won't believe is someone named Lazarus rises from the dead. And the proof of that is going to be just a few weeks into the future. Jesus will raise a man named Lazarus from the dead. Do the Pharisees end up believing him? No. No, they do not. How do the Pharisees respond when Jesus actually raises a man named Lazarus from the dead? They want to kill him. That's what the brothers actually want to do when Lazarus goes back from the dead. They want to kill him. They want to kill Lazarus. In fact, John 12.10 says the chief priest plotted to kill both Jesus and Lazarus. That's what happens when you send Lazarus back from the dead. And, And that all occurs... Their attempt to kill Lazarus occurs on the day before Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem. So I think the whole reason Jesus uses the name Lazarus in the story is because when he later brings a man named Lazarus back from the dead and they still refuse to believe, the name Lazarus is like, I told you so. I told you weeks ago. And the religious leaders weren't, who were always asking the sign, asking for a sign. They're claiming that if Jesus would perform a miracle from heaven, then they would believe. Would they? No. No, they won't. Miracles are never a, uh, a motivator to faith. The only ones who believed in Jesus after raising Lazarus from the dead were people who also believed the scriptures in what they said, declaring to them, the evidence that you see before you is that Christ is the Messiah. That's what they need to believe. That's the evidence they need is the scriptures. And if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will you believe even if a man comes back from the dead and Jesus is going to prove it to them. Believing Scripture is the only way anyone ever gets saved. It's never on the basis of miracles. That'll be our story next week. Let's pray.